Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Facebook is looking to hire a product design manager for the app's UI quality team in New York City. Recurly is looking for a senior product designer in Boulder, Colorado. PRR is looking for a bench graphic slash visual designer in Seattle, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., or Alexandria, Virginia. And Insider Inc. is looking for a graphic designer in New York City. Companies, stop making excuses on your DNI efforts and post your job listings with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word for you about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these jobs. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, we've got a new review on Apple Podcasts. This is from John at N-E, J-O-N-A-T-N-E. Uh, and it's called Production Quality, Guests, and Topics Are All Very High Quality. Here it is. As an employer of designers, I'm learning a lot from this podcast. Short and sweet. We like that. <laughs> Thanks for that great review. You know, we've been getting a lot of love lately, which I mean, you know, we're seven years and 350 plus episodes in on this show. So I'm glad that it's out there still teaching people and showing, you know, just the wealth of black excellence out there in the design community, in the tech field and beyond. Big thanks to the sponsor for this episode, Facebook Design. To learn more about how the Facebook design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Ayodele Odubela, a data scientist at Samba Safety in Denver, Colorado. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Ayodele Odubela, and I'm a data scientist at Samba Safety. Now, one thing that I've been doing with these episodes recently, you know, before we get into the meat of like what you do and where you work and what you work on. Of course, we're recording this now in the middle of a very unprecedented time. How are you holding up during all this? You know, thankfully, really good. So my whole data science department is kind of within engineering. A lot of our processes didn't really change. So engineers can sometimes be, you know, slacking you from across the room versus going into an office. So it hasn't changed much for me, and I'm really, really thankful that things with housing, all of these things haven't been a major issue because I know that it's it's rough out there. It sounds like you've been keeping busy. I, I took a look at your Twitter and I saw a tweet where you mentioned like webinars, and conferences and panels that you're going to be a part of in the coming months. So it looks like you're kind of making the most out of this time. Definitely. I am an Aries. And uh, right now, I'm like, <laughs> I can't do much else. I'm either... 
working out some days or working on like creating content. The real driver for that is that I wish I could go out. I wish I could like go to brunch, but I'm like, if I'm going to be inside, I might as well try and get some things done. Yeah. Let's talk about the work that you're doing now. You're working for a company called Samba Safety. Is that right? Yeah. What are your work days looking like right now? You know, it's interesting because I actually started Samba Safety one week before the like mandatory work from home order. So I only got to really meet my coworkers. It was like first week setting up all of the IT stuff and then everything else has been from home. So right now, thankfully, I've gotten all of the kind of boring parts out of the way. And I'm my day tends to look like our morning stand up, a little bit of analysis, meeting with our other data scientists on the team, just going over the past models and all of what we are going to be doing for putting these models into production. How did you first get started there? It's funny, actually, this was one of the few times that a recruiter just reached out to me randomly and found that my work overlapped with theirs. I think they probably were looking at an old resume of mine that still said Denver because I was in San Diego at the time. Mm. And what really got me was the company's mission. So a lot of what my work entails is trying to understand the risk for car drivers. So a lot of our customers are like Uber and Lyft. These big transportation companies want to know how risky their drivers are so that they can put in preventative measures. There's like aggressive driving courses that they can offer. And so a lot of what I do now is trying to reduce the risk. And trust me, I have been in enough like horrifying Uber and Lyft rides. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is a problem that needs fixing. That's an interesting kind of, uh, well, I mean, it's a, it's a necessary problem to solve. I think especially now at a time where I just saw recently both Uber and Lyft are requiring drivers and passengers to wear masks. I wonder how that affects the risk. And I don't necessarily mean from like a physical standpoint, but more so from like a perception standpoint. I'll give you an example. I'd say maybe about about two weeks ago, our stay at home order here lifted almost a month ago. And so I was like, I finally sort of got up the nerve to say, I'm going to leave the house and I'm going to go to the liquor store. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I called a lift. Yeah. <laughs> I called a lift, had my mask on, lift comes up. Sees me with the mask and is like, nope. And that was it. Like, oh, okay. okay. Yeah. And I mean, there's, I mean, I probably think there's probably some level of just inherent discrimination there. But when I think about risk, I think less about traffic risk and more about situational risk. I don't know. Is that something that kind of factors into the work that you do? Not in what I do on a daily basis, because what we're typically looking at is your mode of vehicle records. So let's say you apply to work at Lyft. We would pull your motor vehicle record and make sure there's no like DUIs in the last three years, that type of thing. And then we calculate based off of, all right, so over time, have you had multiple offenses? And that's how we kind of come up with that driver risk score. But to talk about like your version of risk too, and from your perspective, I have had the most varying experiences in lifts in like the past two months. So Since I'm in Colorado, my car battery died because it snowed. We got here in March and we haven't left the house Mm -hmm. in two months. So I've just been lifting around before I, you know, made the time to go get that done. And I've gone from seeing people who were not wearing masks, not caring about it, to providing masks for passengers, 
to they had like a plastic shower liner to put like from between the driver and the passengers. Like, oh, wow. I've kind of seen the whole gamut. And I think that is such an interesting use case to understand how a COVID changed probably a lot of these like driving patterns. Mm -hmm. I'm sure from people going to work that morning rush commute is probably not the same. We're probably seeing people going more to clinics and healthcare places. We're probably seeing that, especially because so many people impacted are low income, are like underrepresented black Mm -hmm. and Latinx folks who may not already have transportation. I think there's so much that like we can uncover there. Now, before the work that you were doing at, at Samba Safety, you, you did data science work for a number of other companies, uh, MindBody, Adistry, Astral AR. How was it different doing data science for such a different types of companies? Because like MindBody, I believe, is about wellness, and mm-hmm. Adistry is about marketing and advertising, and Astral AR is like aerospace stuff. Yeah, they're a drone company. It's really interesting because that I think is one of the more fun parts of being in data science is I have so many different types of data I get to work with. The hard part is a lot of the theory translates, but a lot of the execution doesn't. So at MindBody, I was looking more at like product analytics, our internal marketing data, and my day-to-day looked so different than it does right now at Zomba Safety. We also had a much larger team at MindBody. So even at Samba Safety, I'm one of two data scientists. So being on a really small team, being in this space that Samba Safety is in, I have to care a lot more about explainability and interpretability. And the reason for that is that we're actually a credit reporting agency. So let's say someone wanted to get a job at Lyft. We pull their motor vehicle record. Turns out maybe they had a major violation with the state, but they did um, like, what am I thinking of? Maybe they had like a violation with the state, but they did community service, but it's not taken off their motor vehicle record. So when we pull it, they don't get the job with Lyft and they say, hey, like, there's no reason I shouldn't get this job. We have to provide to them a certain number of reasons why they were denied for that. So we're held to a higher standard than like Facebook running algorithmic tests on their users by manipulating timelines. There's not really a lot of laws that say, hey, they can't specifically do this. Hmm. Interesting. Now, what would you say working at those different companies taught you? You know, it's really about adaptability. And I think a lot of people who are interested in data science and machine learning, it's really easy to get into like neural networks and AI because it's kind of flashy and cool. But what you tend to do in industry is really try to solve for the business problem. So like, even if you're just interested in going from like an analyst to a data scientist or kind of elevating in this field, it's really proving to the business that your work has value and it really impacts their company. So it's Mm -hmm. saving them money or optimizing a process. These are the things that we kind of tend to optimize for. And a lot of the times the tools we use to do it are the most basic tools like logistic regression, the things that aren't really flashy and kind of sound more mathy. Yeah. It's interesting because like with designers, I'd say mostly with product designers, it can be a similar sort of thing. Like, the work that they do with design, if they're doing it for like a really big flashy company, like a Dropbox or something like that, it just looks cooler. They want to be attracted to doing cool work. But then there's also design work that are, that you know, that happens in very sort of unsexy type of 
companies, like an insurance company or something like that. Yeah. It's still design work that needs to be done, but it's not as flashy and big, you know, that kind of thing. It doesn't get the same, like, instant reaction from folks than, like, an AR demo of an app, you know? Right, right, right. Let's switch gears here a little bit. I'm curious, where did you where did you grow up? I grew up in Texas, actually. Okay. Was so tech a big I, part of your childhood? You know, it was. And I will say that my dad's the reason for that. He was like one of those crazy early adopters who got that big, like massive satellite dish in the 90s. Like, oh, wow. Whole thing. <laughs> but it's funny because both of my parents had kind of dabbled in tech. My dad ended up doing more like audio production and my mom more on the nursing side. But they had both kind of mentioned to me growing up, they'd either taken computer classes. My mom was kind of like, oh, maybe I should go back to COBOL now that it's needed. <laughs> and so they did have a positive influence in that aspect, but they also really encouraged me. Like I was building like custom MySpace sites, that kind of thing. I don't think they saw it necessarily as a career path, mm. but they were like, if you're into it, do it. We don't care. <laughs> yeah. Where in Texas did you grow up? Dallas area. So like Arlington, right outside, right between Dallas and Fort, Fort Worth. Worth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. I've got family in Dallas. I don't go there often enough, but I always enjoy going there when I do go there. It it reminds me a lot of Atlanta. Like just it yeah. feels like a lateral kind of a a city, very big highways, long stretches of highways and yep. stuff. <laughs> it's so, a it's a love hate, you know, like I thankfully had a lot of like exposure to art and a lot of different cultures when I grew up there. So I am appreciative of that at the very yeah. So you had this kind of early introduction into tech. Going into college, what did you decide to study? You know, it's so funny. I was undecided my first year because I was like, I have no idea what I'm doing with life. <laughs> and it's crazy because this was right as the whole swine flu thing was happening. So I was pre-med. And then I got the swine flu when I was at like this conference for college seniors. Oh, wow. Who wanted to be pre-med. And I got that, got sent home. And I was like, I'm not going into medicine. You're telling me I can Ooh. catch this? No. So I was undecided. And then I went through the gamut of things. So my kind of background is very convoluted. I was like, let me try journalism for a year. Did not like that. (laughs) And then I heard about jobs in film. And I had always been interested in like big Hollywood movies. Like my parents are Nigerian immigrants. So they loved every big like Hollywood action movie. So I did film for two years, got a degree in that had an associate's degree and was trying to get jobs. And I'm like, oh, okay, so this is how much I'll pay film people. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> one of my friends actually in film school was like, yeah, I'm not going to like transfer and get a four-year degree in film. I'm switching to computer science. And I was like, all right, what's that about? So he showed me some of these starting salaries. I was like, I'm doing that. <laughs> so I spent a year as a computer science major, but I didn't enjoy the coursework. It was, I was like one of two girls in my first computer science class and it was a horrible experience. Like Mm. literally the professor walked up to the class. He was like, oh, it looks like we got two girls in here. Hopefully y'all don't fail. So I'm professor, whatever. I was like, yikes, this is going to be rough. Wow. (laughs) This is going to be rough. So I ended up with a communications degree (laughs) for my undergrad, believe it or not. I was like, let me just wrap up these credits. I will go to grad school for what I really need to do, but I need to get out of like this whole education system. So that's how I got my degree in communications and digital media. And so from there, I went into working in marketing. So 
I had no clue that I would ever be into data science at all. Mm. That's interesting. The the sort of like, it almost feels like a left brain, right brain kind of thing. Like you started out in one thing with like pre-med, then journalism, then film. Do those experiences in any way kind of help enrich the work that you do as a data scientist? You know, I think they do. And that is what I think is really cool is that I can't say I'm more of a left brain or right brain person because obviously everyone has aspects of each. But those creative elements I learned with like film editing and learning how to criticize media, I'm able to criticize my models, criticize the kind of data I'm looking at with the same kind of lens. Like, I think it's enhanced my work in that I don't just see things from, I don't want to say like a traditional statistical perspective, Mm -hmm. but I'm able to like look at a data set and say, okay, but we have to understand inherently this is biased because these people weren't in our survey or these people are just less likely to answer surveys and all of these other reasons that I've kind of pulled together from this really weird, like journalism kind of taught me how to write well (laughs) and communicate well, which is so huge in data science and that like, it's rare that you'll find someone kind of in that engineering website of things that wants to go out and talk about things. But I think that it's so necessary <laughs> and that we we don't see a lot of engaging content sometimes too. Yeah. It's good that you're able to kind of take those other skills that you have and then in some way extrapolate them into the work that you're doing now. Yeah. And it's not easy <laughs> necessarily and we don't kind of <laughs> directly translate, but I kind of look back and I think about some of the key takeaways I've had from like even just majoring in computer science for a year, I see things a little bit differently. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that is some perspective, I think. Was it a big leap to go from digital media to data science? Absolutely. That was, let's see, the course of four years in total from me graduating with my undergrad to me graduating with my master's degree. I chose to go the, go the school route. Like I worked in marketing and kind of, it's weird, I fell into data science in a way. So as a social media marketer, like I'm writing the content for all of our clients at this time when I was working at an agency and our PPC guy was out and he kind of ran all of the really interesting Facebook ads and Google ads. And I was like, okay, I kind of have to pick up his, his work for a week. But I was like, this analytic stuff is kind of interesting. I'm looking at the click-through rates and trying to understand, you know, what we can manipulate. Like, this was like 2015. So it's like, if we put emojis in our copy, like people will click this ad more. (laughs) Um, And so that kind of was my first foray into analytics. And my job after that was actually at an app company doing their social media analytics. So I was running like A-B tests on their in-app notifications it was kind of a little stairway into into data science is starting to do more of this analytical work. So I was a lot less creative and more A-B testing. And I'd started really reading in about statistics. And then my job after that was technically as a data scientist, but that was my role at Addistry. A lot of what I was doing is manual, like data collection and cleaning and like slogging through that. But yeah, I kind of series of short roles mm-hmm. <laughs> that led me in the right direction. I'm thinking about how, and this is probably back in like the nineties or so, how 
data, at least I'm, I'm thinking like data processing, maybe these are two different things, but I'm thinking how data processing and data entry and things like that had such a bad reputation as being like, like low collar job, low class jobs in a way. And like now, I guess, because so much of technology is running algorithms and it has to be built on these data sets, how now data is like king or at least, you know, queen, yeah. maybe, I don't know, but like it's up there yeah. in terms of the importance that it's needed at a job like this. Absolutely. And I think what really changed was the shift from like expert systems. So that's, if we look at like natural language processing, we're trying to translate between languages. We would used to have like a ton of like linguistics PhDs sit down and write these rules for how we translate this. And sometime between like the nineties and I would say like 2000, we really started that shift and we were saying, okay, instead of having these people manually write down this if then statement, essentially, if we just feed into this algorithm, all of the data that we do have, let it do its thing on its own. It doesn't take uh, man hours. It doesn't, I mean, the compute cost is there, but Mm -hmm. obviously like computing power has dramatically increased but we let these algorithms do it themselves. And that's kind of how data has become so crucial. And that value is that data is grown because these algorithms are nothing without good data, accurate data, and a lot of it. Right. What about data science like really appeals to you? You know, I think it's really the impact you can have in an organization. So I feel like I'm that like stereotypical millennial who I'm like, there's a, I have a big list of companies I don't want to work for if it's not about <laughs> the mission. And if it's not about like making the world better, I don't want to do it. But what I think is interesting in that is we have a lot of visibility. And I think what's cool about data science is it's not just people get to see that visibility, but we are tend, we tend to be like respected by people and companies. Like I can go to my CEO and say, Hey, you know, I ran these models and actually have influence on, on what's happening. So being able to be in a role that a people listen to you, not mm-hmm. all the time, because a lot of times we have to also say, no, ethically, we shouldn't do this, but we tend to have more influence. That kind of got me because we can push things in the right direction. So when I was like in grad school for data science, I was reading these articles about how like, Google's AI is labeling black people as gorillas and how like there's a lot of facial recognition systems that cannot tell us apart. The darker Uh you are, if you're a woman, like there's so many issues. If I can have a positive impact on that and that like has real life change, that kind of is the big deal for me. Yeah. Data now, like, you know, it's, it's the thing that can't really be argued. Like Mm -hmm. people can have, thoughts about things. They can have feelings. They can have intuition when it comes to certain business decisions or things like that. But when you look at the data and the data says, this is what's happening, you can't dispute that. So I I get what you mean about being respected with that. Like I I used to work as a creative strategist and at the company that I was Mm -hmm. with, when I was able to present the data, like from week to week to say, this is what's happening, they can't refute that. They can't say, oh, yeah. well, this must be wrong. It's like, no, this is the data. This is what our analytics are saying. So Exactly. Yeah. And it's very, it's a lot easier to get buy-in when you're able to back it up with something. Now, I mentioned this a little bit to you before the show, but I, I have a friend of mine. He has a, a PhD in math. He was a math teacher for several years at one of the local 
HBCUs here. And he liked it, but he just wasn't getting paid enough. He felt like he wasn't getting paid enough. And teachers in general don't get paid enough. But he's like, I want to basically increase my salary. And so he started looking into data science. Mm -hmm. And, you know, LinkedIn has the LinkedIn learning courses that are from Linda. I think they're from Linda. He Mm -hmm. took one data science course. (laughs) This is such a weird story. He took one data science course on LinkedIn, applied for a data scientist position out in Salt Lake City, got the job, and effectively doubled his salary. This took place in the span of about, I want to say a month and a half. It is amazing. I mean, clearly there's there's the income potential, but like, yeah, that that is amazing. Yeah, like, I won't lie. That was one of the reasons that I chose data science. Hey. Um, (laughs) I had that, look, I'll be real. We we live in a capitalist society. Yeah. We do. (laughs) And then... (laughs) We, we deal with a lot of things. Like, I'm helping my parents out. I'm helping my family. We have a lot of responsibilities. You know, I was like, if I have to learn this stats, these stats, this math, I can figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and the earning potential was absolutely worth it. Like, I remember, so my first couple jobs in data, they were full-time jobs, but I was working at, like, startups. So yeah. I was not making a lot of money. I was not making six figures at all. One of the jobs I was working for equity because you know how that is. I did get phenomenal experience, but I was in a situation where thankfully my boyfriend was t- paying for rent. I was able to get by on like my part-time job. Mm-hmm. And after I ended work- and I stopped working for them, I was working at a gas station making $9 an hour overnight <laughs> in a not great part of town. Like, wow. I was like, okay, the only benefit was if I can sit here, I can, at two o'clock in the morning, I'm sitting here reading my artificial intelligence book. I'm like, I hope someone doesn't steal this book from me. (laughs) (laughs) I need this for class. And I went from that role ending in November. I graduated in December. And in February, I was seeing six figures in a job. Wow. It's unbelievable because it's so uncommon to see people not just like, and a lot of data science roles, once you start getting experience, are in the high end of the six figures. It's so interesting to see how dramatically it can change your life. And honestly, it, it got me out of being broke. Like, that's real life. Like, I was not, you know, making a lot of money and, and dealing with things like student loans already. I was like, you know, I'm just going to go back to school for this. Yeah. Is the, is the West Coast out there kind of big for, for data science? Because you're in Denver. The friend that I just mentioned, he's in Salt Lake City. I'm just curious, like, is that part of the country, like, a hotbed for data science work? Yeah, you know, right now I would say it is. So Denver's really hot for a lot of tech jobs, um, a lot of software engineering roles. But same thing for data science. We're seeing companies like Twitter and Google have offices in Boulder. I know there's a lot of tech startups in Salt Lake as well. I think one of the nice things is you do get a, I would say, fairly lower cost of living than somewhere like California or Portland. But at the same time, you have a a lot of people come out here for nature. (laughs) If you want to be out in the mountains, you can. Mm -hmm. Um, If you want to live out in the mountains and have like satellite internet and don't want to talk to anyone, you can just gives you kind of a lot of options. So yeah. it's definitely, I've seen a lot, a lot more roles uh, open. I actually know quite a few open data science roles in Denver right now. Okay. I went to Denver for the first time last year on a nice. complete lark. I was like, I've never been to Denver. 
I want to go to Denver. Well, that's not true. I had been there on a layover to Seattle, but that was like 20 years ago. But I was like, I really want to go to Denver. And it's hands down one of my favorite cities in the country. It is so nice and chill. And I don't know if it's because of the marijuana, maybe so, but it was so (laughs) chill. Like I grew up in the South. I still live in the South now. I'm in Atlanta. And at my former job, that was in New York, I always hated going to New York because I'm like, I hate just how on top of, you know, everyone's just on top of each other. It's so fast. And like, you know, but I went to Denver and I was like, oh, this is the city I can run away to. Like, if I get tired of Atlanta and I need a change, I'm like, I could see myself in Denver. I was like, this is kind of nice. I dig it. You know, it's so funny. I came out here for the first time in like, I think 2015. And I I really just wanted to experience the cannabis industry. I was like, I want to see what this is about. Yeah. Um, and ended up moving out here for the industry, did data science in the industry, had a lot of other jobs. It's so laid back. And I think that's what sometimes I take for granted because I remember being in Dallas and like everyone is about appearances what kind of car you drive, what your hair looks like all the time. I came out here, I was like, nobody, the girls ain't even wearing heels at the bar. It's very laid back, though. Other cities where, where data science is big? Yeah, you know, I would say, I know right now San Diego is also a really big hotbed. I've heard Chicago has a lot of data science jobs right now, too. I've actually started to see a lot more open in the Midwest, which I think, I don't know is maybe an effect of COVID or, or not, but I think that's a, it provides a good opportunity, if you can handle living there, for people to save on that cost of living, because like, Bay Area life is rough. And, yeah. and same thing for New York City. Um, it doesn't seem to go nearly as far. Yeah. What keeps you motivated and inspired with the work that you do? You know, it's really about trying to see change in this industry. So it's not to say that things are headed in the wrong direction, but I think a lot of times, a lot of product teams overlook the possible risk that their models have. They don't spend enough time on mitigating this risk. So trying to influence people on like the proper ways to do data science, the ways to be reproducible and to do it like an actual science and it's interesting because we tend to be lumped in with engineering, but our processes are so much more like hard sciences than they are like engineering, despite uh-huh. the fact that we're using code. Let's say that there are people that are out there listening. And to be honest, I'm part of people who are interested in getting into data science. What skills should they learn to help them get started? Yeah, you know, I think the very first one is SQL. And this is one I will say I personally wish I spent more time on before I started working at data science jobs. You have to be able to get the data from somewhere. And if we think about big companies, the vast majority of the time they're in a database. So I would say first thing to learn is SQL and then really try to understand how to analyze data. So it's less of a tool and more building that insight, sitting down and let's say pulling the statistics for something. And it's learning how to notice when there's issues in your data. So let's say you are trying to predict if something is, I don't know, give me an example. I'll give you an example. So let's say you have a website and you're trying to see from week to week how 
certain posts are performing, something like that. Yes, perfect. So if you're trying to compare like this post one and this post two, and you see like post one has 50 million views and post two has like three, it should probably start to set off an alarm. And that alarm is kind of that data science intuition where you'd say, okay, I'm either going to double check the data. I'm going to make sure that our developers are pulling this win right and they're tagged right. I'm going to make sure that I've like collected the data properly. It's building that intuition that I mm-hmm. think is the like mi- hard middle part between like being a beginning learner and then feeling very comfortable with it. When do you feel the happiest? Ooh, that's a good question. I would have to say I really enjoy teaching. So I thought it was funny you mentioned LinkedIn Learning courses. I'm actually going to be doing a course for LinkedIn Learning on supervised machine learning. So huh. I started writing that and recording that. And I think what really makes me happy is seeing that kind of aha moment for people and then bringing a lot of these issues in machine learning to light. So I am like really, really ecstatic. I'm actually going to be writing a book about uncovering bias in machine learning. And I think this will kind of show a lot of people who are very technical that data isn't like neutral. (laughs) Data is political and we have to understand the impact that, you know, all of these things like collection methods and sampling methods have on our data negatively and how we can, like, we can propagate bias even though we don't mean to. Data isn't neutral, it's political. I've never thought about it that way. But then I, I guess when you look at how it's used, that makes sense. Like if it's an algorithm or something, say for crime detection or things of that nature, I can see then how that data can be used in a, in a bad way. Absolutely. And um, I actually heard that the city of Los Angeles or Orange County, they're not going to be using PredPol anymore, which is their predictive policing software. I think one of the hard parts is that if we think about policing, we have an understanding that policing is biased. Like not every zip code gets policed the same way, mm-hmm. despite the fact that for the vast majority of crimes, they're committed you know, almost evenly depending on the type of crime. But certain places, if we're looking at crime data, we have to understand it's going to be biased and we're not going to see a lot of arrests in 90210. Yeah. Like that is just a problem with the data itself. So what do we do? A lot of people say, oh, well, it's fine. Just use it anyway. But it just propagates (laughs) the same problem. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like data science right now is something which is really interesting, aside from the the previous examples that you mentioned, but also when you look at this current time that we're in, which is this pandemic, right? We're recording this now in like mid to late May. It's May 21st. And there was a chart, a graph, a, a bar graph that came out from Georgia about the coronavirus cases, right? And the way that the person arranged the data on the graph, from a distance, you'd look at it and say, oh, well, it looks like cases are going down. But then you take a closer look, and not only are the dates on the x-axis changed to make it appear that the data is is trending downward, but also each of the individual data points have been reordered to give you this specific feeling when you look at the chart and say, oh, it's going down. But then when you actually look at the data, you're like, no, it's steady or it's actually going up. And one of the things that right now all 50 states are in some form of reopening, right? 
And they are looking at data to determine if they should do that. Like that, they're looking at that to make those decisions because if cases are going down, then they're like, okay, we can start doing gradual reopening. Mm-hmm. If the cases weren't doing that, if they weren't looking at the data, they wouldn't be able to make those decisions, at least not informed decisions to do so. I know here in Georgia, Georgia has been like the canary in the coal mine because we started at first and now other yeah. states are like, oh, I think we're going to open up slowly as well. But that's based on whether or not that data is actually accurately, not just analyzed, but also portrayed. Absolutely. And that's one of the most important parts about what we do. Like, I do think that there should be a ethical pledge for people in data science because Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you're going to be asked to do things that you know is unethical. Like if we, especially for people who are interested in this, you have to be able to push back to be that squeaky wheel, to be unpopular, to not have management like your decisions. Or there's a lot of things that we know can make a company money in this we live in a very capitalist system. But are you going to do these things? Like that has major influence in the world and what's going to happen to people if we just completely reopen based off of data that's not good. I think one of the one book I always like to highlight is reading How to Lie with Statistics. Stats are not straightforward. Like we can <laughs> we can tell from like the four out of five dentists thing. It is so much easier to lie with stats than people think. We see a number, we see a percentage, and we want to take it for hard truth. But honestly, we have to be really, really, really skeptical every time we see any stat listed for anything because we can say, okay, well, what was your sample size? Was it four people that took your survey? There's so many factors that are involved that if you're a skeptical person, I want you to be in data science because we have to call it out. (laughs) Yeah. And you see it happen all the time in the news. And I don't know if it's just because it's easier to write the headline that way, but you'll see mostly with polling. Yes. Like you'll see them say, oh, well, 68% of Americans, but then they actually only polled like 400 people. So that's not really representative of the entire country. And I think one of the things that is always so relevant is how they sampled to get those 400 people is Mm. almost more important than if they sampled correctly and got those 400 people. So if you're doing a survey and not really paying attention to the balance of how many women you have or how many minorities you have, and you just kind of cast a wide net, it's easy to assume that you're going to have a little bit of everything. But if you randomly sample like a hundred marbles that's supposed to represent the entire U.S. If you randomly sample that and get 40, you're not going to get any black people. You're Mm -hmm. not going to get any Asian people. We have to be more like scientific, especially about polling. Yeah. So one of the themes that we have for this year is basically how are people using these skills that they have in order to really kind of build the future. So I'll ask you this question. How are you using your skills in data science to help build a more equitable future? Yeah, I think for me, it's about education and and kind of shedding a light on where there are problems that are unethical and inequitable and also just impact us in a discriminatory way, despite the fact that that may not be the implicit motive. I think it's just shedding a light on the things that aren't easy to spot when we're looking at bias tech. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? What kind of work do you want to do? Ooh, 
That's a good question. I would really like to be either leading a data team that's doing work to focus on machine learning and the issues that we have with facial recognition and identifying and categorizing dark skin. That's one of the things I have really been thinking about for a long time and have really wanted to spend some research time on. All right. Well, just to kind of, you know, wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work and everything online? Yeah, they can check out my website, which is dazzlingdata.science. Or you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at datasci.bae. That's D-A-T-A-S-C-I-B-A-E. All right. Sounds good. Well, Ayodele Odubela, thank you so much for coming on the show and really for just sharing not only your story about how you got into data science, I think it's very real to kind of say like you wanted to kind of change your trajectory and this is how you did it. I think it's one thing, of course, to have like the passion for it, which certainly you do, but also because just of like the world that we live in, we want to improve ourselves and also really kind of showing how easy it is to get into it in terms of not only education, like you're doing webinars and things of that nature, but showing that there are simple steps that we can take to kind of get more into this. So I'm interested to kind of see where you go in the future. And hopefully from this interview, there'll be more people, including me, I'm people, who will get interested in data science. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Maurice. It has been really awesome. And you've been amazing. Big, big thanks to Ayodele Odubela, and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Ayodele and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Facebook Design. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us at yepitslunch.com. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, or even better, by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll even read your review right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.